I called, you answered. You came to my rescue. And Lord, because you did, because you have told us who you are, demonstrated who you are, communicated your your permanence in our life, your eternalness, and your goodness. We want to be where you are. And we thank you so much that where you are, we find rest, we find strength, and we find courage for the day. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many of you are zombie fans. Anybody here? Anybody here watch the program Walking Dead? Anybody seen it? You've seen it. All right. Um, It's a strange, apocalyptic kind of program. There's a lot of those kinds of things around. And even though you may not, that may not be your taste, and you may not think much about zombies, which I really did not, uh, it's in the same category as Draculas and vampires and werewolves and all that kind of ascendancy and storytelling that's been very, very popular with young people. But this program is in its ninth season, its most popular program on the station that is producing it. And it talks about a man of policeman who is in a car accident. He goes into a coma and wakes up after that coma and finds that the whole world has changed. It's in an apocalyptic uproar because there has been a virus that attacks the brain and everybody who everybody's infected all over the world. But there are some people who have become, as a part of this um, virus, um, reduced to Um, only eating, and they are so consumed after they die, they rise again to eat, and they infect other people by attacking them. It sounds horrible, and it is. It gives people a wonderful opportunity for Halloween all the time uh, with all kinds of makeup and gruesome kinds of things. It does talk a great deal about where much of the world is in terms of survivalism, planning for a future that may be the result of an atomic bomb, an atomic attack, and the world gets devastated, all the things get reduced, all the services are gone, there is no internet, maybe that's a good thing. There's no telephones. Maybe that's a good thing. No cell phones. People actually have to talk with one another, even if they're talking and running away from something that wants to eat them. But it is how then do you put life together? How do you balance all the things that we sort of take for granted, all of those things that are gone, even in terms of culture and value? How will we live? How will we think? What will we value? What will we not? What kind of moral, ethical base will there be? Everything is turned upside down, inside out. Will it be survival of the fittest? Will it be I'm out for me? There's no idea of sacrifice because I want to stay alive. That's the motivation. That is where a lot of people are moving as they think about the future, surviving. And even in the smallest sense of that, sometimes we operate out of basic survival. 
We want to survive sometimes more than we want to thrive. It seems hard enough to make a living. It seems hard enough to get up and go out and work. It seems hard enough balancing all of the the costs of, of living. And all of those challenges, along with all the other things that swirl around us, sometimes make us think, well, I can give in to what I really believe in my core. That's untouched. And I can sort of play the game like everybody else. I can look like everybody else in the world when really I have been changed. And we create this pantheon of conflict within us when we are not true to the invitation that the Lord speaks to us to live not bought and sold by the world, but surrendered to Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a couple scriptures here, a couple passages, and we're going to compare them. I hope you have copies of them. You got them when you came in. Um, They're 1 Kings 17 and Luke 7. They're similar in a lot of ways, and as we kind of go through them very quickly, you'll see they're focused on death and struggle, and then life, and celebration. In this passage from 1 Kings, uh, we have Elijah, who, as a sort of backup, he was told by God to go to King Ahab and tell him there wouldn't be any rain until Elijah said there would be. So there was drought in the land, and then there was famine. And for a while, and, and Elijah was not exempt from that, um, but he was taken to a place, and there the birds came, and they brought him food. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a bird bring you food, meat and bread, and you've taken it. Well, if you're starving, you're probably not going to think much about re- resisting that, even if you know it's been in a bird's mouth, and you're not quite sure where he got it. It's going to keep you alive. When I read that, I thought, hmm... Do I, well, I got to trust the Lord. So he did. He ate. He survived. And then it got so bad that even the brook dried up. There was such drought in the land. So he sent him to a widow's home, and that widow had a son. And he went to her and asked her if she had any food. She said, I do. I have one bit of oil, one bit of flour. I'm going to make the last meal for myself and my son, and then we're going to die. Now, that's very pragmatic, isn't it? Not very happy, though. That's what her plan was. Surviving had stopped. She wasn't thriving. She was just going to survive for a little bit longer along with her son. And, you know, the audaciousness of what God invites us to do, he invites us to step outside our comfort zone. He invited that widow through Elijah to say to her, what I would like you to do is to take that oil, take that flour, mix it together, make that bread and bring it to me so I'm hungry, feed me because I'm hungry. Now, does that sound audacious? This is standing between you and your son's life and death. She did it. She was obedient. One step. And for the next three years, she never ran out of flour. She never oil. And she always had food for her, and Elijah stayed with her during that time. Well, here we are, 
And this is what happened. Later on, the woman's son became sick. The sickness, I'm reading in the message, the sickness took a turn for the worse, and then he stopped breathing. The woman said to Elijah, why did you ever show up here in the first place? A holy man barging in, exposing my sins and killing my son. Now, that's sometimes what we think. When something goes wrong, we think, God, what are you doing here? I don't deserve this. I'm going to forget for the last three years that you took a bit of flour and a bit of oil and you've kept us alive. God, why are you doing that to me? That's her first thought. That's her first thought. And that's often our first thought. I don't deserve this. I know I'm a sinner, but you don't have to punish me and punish me by taking my son. So, the three three times, well, go back. Elijah said, hand me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up to the loft where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he prayed, oh God, my God, why have you brought this terrible thing on this widow who has opened her home to me? You killed her son. Three times he stretched himself out full length on the boy, praying with all his might. Three times, God, my God, put breath back into this boy's body. And it says that God listened to Elijah and put breath back into his body. He was alive. And Elijah picked the boy up, carried him downstairs from the loft and gave him to his mother and said, here's your son, alive. Now, the son is dead, and then this happens, and the word alive never would have crossed her mind because death was permanent. This was not an expected miracle, but God was gracious. God was doing something wonderful, incredible. The woman said to Elijah, I see it all now. You are a holy man. When you speak, God speaks a true word. Now let's go to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 7, not long after that, Jesus went to the village Nain. Disciples were with him, along with quite a large crowd. As they approached the village gate, they met a funeral procession. A woman's only son was being carried out for burial, and the mother was a widow. When Jesus saw her, his heart broke. He said to her, don't cry. Then he went over and touched the coffin. Now, you're going to see the difference here of how a holy man of God who definitely has the spirit of God upon him and is faithful to do exactly what God tells him to do and the difference of the one who is the Lord of life, who is life itself, and how he responds to the the need and how a miracle happens. The mother was a widow, and Jesus saw her, his heart broke. Now, now take note of this. God is a compassionate God. That's something that we have to let bury down deep in our spiritual psyche and gut. We have to get a hold of that for us to ever trust God for anything. God is compassionate. God is moved by us, by our need. God is love. It's that simple phrase, that we, the simple scripture that we teach our children because we want them to get a handle on who God is. Well, he's defined by his action. God is love. He looks and he has compassion because he knew that a widow without her son would starve to death. 
days, mothers needed a husband or they needed a son to intercede for them and make sure that they were listened to and that they had their, their needs met. The pallbearers, um, he said to her, don't cry. Then he went over and just touched the coffin. The pallbearer stopped. He said, young man, I tell you, get up. He just touched the the coffin. He didn't even have to touch the man. Now, Elijah had to lay on this child three times and beseech God. Jesus said these words, young man, I tell you, get up. Now, think about that for a moment. The man was dead. Do you think it got the attention of everybody, the pallbearers? Went over and said, get up. And what happens? The dead son sat up. Now that alone would freak everyone out. Okay? The dead arising. We've seen that in a number of movies where the corpse springs up because they're rigid um, or because what people used to worry about was that people would fall into such a deep coma in years past, centuries past, that they worried they'd be buried alive. And some were because they hadn't complete, they weren't dead. They were just in a very, very dead-like state. This was not that. He was in the coffin. In the Jewish burial, it was a very simple burial, but they knew they were dead. They always buried them in in white, in something that was biodegradable. They were very earth-friendly. They also buried them in something that was going to decay. They didn't bury them in massive metal coffins, in things that are supposed to last or to show someone's wealth. They were very simple because they said, we go back to the dust. As we were made from dust, we go back to the dust. And they were also anointed with spices, um, a special blend. We know that when the women wanted to go to the tomb for Jesus, and they didn't have a chance to anoint him. Well, he had already been anointed by Nicodemus, who had um, bought a, a large amount of spices. And the reason why they used spices is because they had a long um, time before the burial, and they covered up the smell. Now, when I was in Pakistan, I think I mentioned that many years ago, we drove seven miles from the airbase where we landed down into Karachi, Pakistan, downtown. Beautiful, big seaport, even bigger and um, more beautiful now. But we drove through seven miles of the worst poverty I have ever seen. It was seven miles, and it stretched so far you couldn't see the end of it. People were living on top of each other with every night, every possible kind of animal and in and, and lean-tos and shacks and, and things of cardboard and, and cloth and the stench was uh, horrendous and they told me when we came in because we were in sort of the lead group of people so we got a little bit of, of uh, special treatment they said one time when a dignitary was coming in an American dignitary they took perfumed cloth and they covered all of this area for seven miles on either side of this giant highway so that they could hopefully cover up the stench of all of that life. I can't imagine that it worked. But sometimes we are like that. We try to cover up. We try to keep ourselves looking good. Things look good on the outside, but on the inside, they're a mess. 
we cover it over with something that smells sweet and savory and, and engages people and makes everybody feel good. Jesus, one of the gifts that he was given as a child by the three wise men, along with gold, was frankincense, which was the, the spice used in the temple, in the tabernacle, and it was only reserved for God, for deity, and myrrh, which was a spice used in burial. Those three gifts said that he was a king, he was God, and that he had come to die. And Jesus was very familiar with how to speak in to death because he was life itself. The dead man got up and sat up and began talking. Jesus presented him to his mother. It seems so natural the way this is. It seems like this is the norm rather than the exception. They all realized this, that they were in a place of holy mystery, that God was at work among them. They were quietly worshipful and then noisily grateful, calling out among themselves, God is back, looking to the needs of his people. The needs of Jesus, the news of Jesus spread all through the country. I love that description in this translation. They were quietly worshipful. The next funeral that proceeds in this church, what if someone sits up as the coffin comes in? Would we be quietly worshipful? How about what? And then noisily grateful. Whoa! Calling out among themselves, God is back looking to the needs of his people. Maybe we don't need a funeral service. Maybe that should be our attitude. Is God at work in your life? Is God at work in this place? Is God at work in his world? Is God at work among us? And if so, what is our response? Because that's what it comes down to. God is going to do what he does. He brings life. He speaks renewal. He speaks life into death. The walking dead are now alive. Some of us in our world live as if we're already in the apocalypse, as if we're already the walking dead. God has something better for his church people. We should be engaging and can be engaging people at the point of life. Our encouragement is to think about what God is doing in our life and what he wants to do in our world. Incense in the temple and the tabernacle was very scripted. Now we have perfume on everything, every counter, thousands and thousands of, of brands of, of perfume. But when God was forming his people in the desert, he gave them the ingredients for a special anointing oil and for a special incense. The anointing oil was put on all the furniture in the church and on the people who served in ministry. That was a special blend, and nobody else was to have it. And then the... the um, Incense that was at the entrance to the tabernacle was a special blend and it had God's name on it. And it was forbidden that anybody should try to mix up that blend. 
because that was reserved for God and God alone because he was the holy God and he was coming to his people to inhabit that place so that they could be worshipful, so that they could be noisily grateful, so that they could be alive knowing that God is with them. Do you know today that God is with you? No matter where you are, what you're doing, whatever you're dealing with, God is with you. We talk about Christmas, Emmanuel, but Emmanuel is now, every day. You have some lovely little air fresheners. Did you get those? You're going to get them. Now, this isn't anything like (laughs) what we read about in the Bible. I haven't even opened it to smell what it, well, it's probably pine, but It is just a little reminder this week as you go to think about this verse that when we are when we are thinking about how the Lord has perfumed our life, we realize that He is the one that perfumes each of us with the the scent, the perfume of life. We're in a processional. And 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 identifies that we're grateful that God makes all of this possible for Christ to lead us to victory. He also helps us spread the knowledge about Christ everywhere. And this knowledge is like the smell of perfume, um, Paul wrote. In fact, God thinks of us as a perfume. Now, listen to this. God thinks of us as a perfume that brings Christ to everyone. For people who are being saved, this perfume has a sweet smell and leads them to a better life. But for people who are lost, it has a bad smell and leads them to a horrible death. Now, you wonder why people don't always like Christians? It's because we smell of life, not death. We step out and believe something that is greater than what we can give to ourselves, what we can manage. Because we look at life, we look like everyone else, we will be born, we will live, and we will die. But we, because of Christ, are given eternity. And we're alive forever. And we are waiting for that resurrection day when all of these bodies that succumb to illness and and age will no longer ever see that again. And we will no longer remember the hurt, the tragedy, the brokenness, the suffering, the sorrow. When we are standing in heaven for eternity, all of this will be gone. We will not be painful for eternity. We will not struggle for eternity. We will have arrived. That's the message of eternal life. That's the message of the cross. Because if it only ended in death, that would be only part of the story that he took our sins into the grave but then he rose again to proclaim the Lord of life conquers and every day is an Easter day every day is a day of victory and every day is a day when we we come to the Lord and we perfume ourselves with the word not just with palm olive and all the things we spray on we perfume our spirits with and our minds that are renewed with the word of God in order that we might walk out in the world and we are different. We're not surviving. We're thriving. We're thriving because we're alive in Christ. And it's the perfume that often is rejected by people who are only smelling of death. We are there to give them an opportunity and an invitation to know this living Lord. Third day, 
has written a, a wonderful song. It's called Your Words, and it's there. Let me hear your words above all other words, ab voices, above all the distractions in this world. Let me hear your words above all the voices, above all the distractions in this world. For your words bring life, and your voice speaks promises. Lord, your love offers more than anything else in the world. Your words give us life that's never-ending. Your words bring us love that never fails. Everything else will fade away, but what will remain are your words. Let us speak your words more than ours, more than ever. Let us share your love with all the world. The grass will wither, flowers will fade, and the, but the word of God, of our God, will last forever. The grass will wither and the flowers will fail, but the word of our God will last forever. For your words bring life, and your voice speaks promises. Lord, your love offers more than anything else in this world. As you come to communion tonight, God speaks words of life to you. He gives himself in the bread and the wine. He lets you know that you are now alive in him. You are rejuvenated. You are, your needs are met. His promises will never fail you. And as you come, let go of those things that stand in the way. Are there unforgivenesses? Lay them down. Are there is there mistrust? Lay, let go of it. Is there something that stands in the way of you wholeheartedly being filled with the life of Jesus Christ now and turning and sharing with someone that joy? Then put it in his hands. And let him speak these words to you that only the living God of the universe, of eternity, the Alpha and Omega, can speak. We receive our offering.